This is Terms of Reference. I'm your host, Stephen Laddick. Dana Graber Laddick is an international development professional with 20 years of experience developing and managing humanitarian assistance and community stabilization projects around the world in coordination with government agencies, the United Nations, and national and international organizations. Her recent assignments include Regional Specialist for Project Development for the International Organization for Migration's Regional Office in Costa Rica, Head of the Regional Support Unit for IOM's Budapest Regional Office, Displacement Specialist for IOM Iraq, Program Liaison for IOM's Washington Regional Office, Director of Outreach for the Communitarian Network, and Youth Development Volunteer for Peace Corps. I spoke with Dana in Costa Rica. Hello, Dana. Thank you so much for being on the Terms of Reference podcast today. Hi, Stephen. It's a pleasure to be here. Dana, where are you sitting today? I'm currently sitting in my office in the regional office of IOM in San Jose, Costa Rica. Okay, so I want to start out this interview a little differently because we need to give full disclosure to everyone that you are actually my wife. And That's so correct. <laughs> we thought it would be a great idea to bring a capstone to the last 100 episodes of terms of reference by um, talking about you know our experience as a development couple or a couple in the development profession and humanitarian aid profession. But first, let's you know. So let's give them a little bit of an idea about who you are. Tell us about what what is it that you do for IOM, which is the International Organization for Migration. Tell us about what you do for them right now here in Costa Rica. I am the Regional Specialist for Project Development, and that means that I support all of our missions in the region, and this region includes Central America, North America, and the Caribbean. So I support the country offices or the missions in our region in developing their projects and their proposals and in fundraising, and all that's related to that, which also includes training them on the whole project development and implementation cycle. And then I'm also the regional coordinator for gender focal points. And so I also support our, our offices in mainstreaming gender into their projects. So, you know, you've just described, I mean, I, I know, you know, you, you support countries from Panama to Canada and that just sounds like I'm already overwhelmed with just that portfolio. Give me a little bit more detail. Like, what, what does it look like when you say you support proposal development and project development and fundraising? I mean, are you on the ground with these countries every day? Are you, know, you, you on an airplane every week? Or what, what does that mean? Well, basically, it does not require me to be on an airplane too much, although I do travel quite a bit in the region. But IOM operates the same way that many NGOs or other agencies operate, and that is that we get our funding from donors, and that funding comes through writing proposals and convincing the donors that our particular project is the best one or the the correct one or the right one uh, to fund. And so that, of course, requires actually writing a proposal and submitting it to the donor, and that could be a result of uh, a request by the donor for a certain proposal or a call for proposals or in formal um, discussions with other counterparts or other stakeholders. And so I support our country offices in that process. So I will help them write the proposals. I will review the proposals. I will train them on how to write the proposals and then how to implement the projects. And this, of course, in in this day and age can be done virtually uh, in many cases. And so I, for example, will receive proposals and I will uh, review them and provide feedback or rewrite certain sections. Um, I do travel to various country offices to train staff on how to write those proposals, the various information and sections that need to be included, and also how to then 
go forth and implement their projects once they are funded, which is a little bit separate than the project development process, but is closely linked. You've been in this role for a little over four and a half years now. What's been, you know, the most exciting project that you've helped develop at this stage in this region? That's a good question. I think that probably the proposals or projects that we have developed to assist the unaccompanied children that are traveling through Central America with their destination being the United States. We're talking about very vulnerable populations um, that are risking their lives basically uh, to to travel by land up through Central America so that they can either be reunited with family or if they're uh, older adolescents to actually work in the United States. And so it's very gratifying to think of ways that we can best support these uh, children either in their journeys to protect them in their journeys through Central America or Unfortunately, many of them are deported either from Mexico or from the United States. And so how do we help them reintegrate into their home lives, especially if we're looking at communities where there aren't very many opportunities for them, either for schooling or for jobs, or sometimes they're returning to pretty violent communities. And so how to best uh, help them and protect them. Hmm. My guess is, is that you don't get to spend a lot of time face to face with the people who are ultimately affected by your programs. Is that right? That's correct. And that is one of the disadvantages of working in a regional office is that you're a bit removed from what's happening um, in the field or on the ground. One very gratifying experience I had is that I did an evaluation of uh, a project this one of these projects, in fact, to help these unaccompanied children. And so I did get to go to the various shelters in Honduras, in El Salvador, and in Guatemala. And I got to actually talk to the children who'd been returned or, or deported. And so it was uh, very interesting to meet with them face-to-face and very gratifying. But that's the exception to the rule. Usually, at the end of the day, it's a desk job. So you haven't been on the ground now, but tell us about what you've done in the past. I, I know, obviously, because I'm your husband, um, that you've had several other careers within IOM, you know, a career within a career. Have you had more, more field time or more, more, more time on the ground in other positions? I have, although several of my positions have been at regional offices within IOM. I did work for the IOM Iraq office, which did allow me to um, go into Iraq several times. But again, we were based in Jordan. So again, that was a bit of the remote management. And uh, I worked for the reg- what was then a regional office in Washington. And I've worked for the regional office in Budapest and now the regional office here. So quite a bit of my experience has been a little more disconnected from the, the day-to-day interaction with beneficiaries. I would say probably with my IOM uh, Iraq experience, that would have been the closest. But of course, I've also done quite a few field trips, uh, what we call the TDYs, into the field and have been able to have more contact through those experiences. Having worked for IOM in, what, four continents now? How varied are those experiences? Are the issues totally different or are they the same? Or you know, is, is each one its own unique experience? Is every country different? Or how do you wrap your brain around each of those experiences? Is it, do you train yourself when you get there or what? I think that is what is so gratifying and exciting about the work is that when you move from one country or one region to another, 
it's a completely new job. It's a completely new dynamic, especially especially for migration. It's completely new migration dynamics. And so it has really varied. And it's been everything from emergency crisis situations to very stable, more building the government's capacity to manage their own borders. And so that is really interesting about the work is that I have had, I feel very lucky in the sense I've had the opportunity to work in so many different areas with so many different interesting people and in a lot of different cultural contexts. How'd you get into this business? Was it, I mean, has it always been your intention to be a development slash humanitarian aid worker or what was the origin origins of your entry into this business? I think growing up, my parents frequently exposed me to people who were in less fortunate situations. And so that was more domestically in the United States. But then I, in undergraduate, I went to Goshen College, which is a small private college. And there we were required to go overseas um, to a country that matched with the language that we were studying. At that time, I was studying Spanish. So that was my first exposure that semester abroad, I would say, although I'd done some traveling abroad. And then after I did that, I, it really piqued my interest in doing international development work. And after undergraduate After working for a couple of years in Washington, D.C., I decided to apply for the Peace Corps and coincidentally uh, was assigned to Costa Rica. And so I think that's where it really launched it, spending two years learning a language very well, living with a Costa Rican family, working in a marginalized uh, neighborhood with children. That's where it really ignited my passion and I've been doing it ever since. What's your favorite go-to story as a development professional? You know, if you if you go back and you sit down with one of your friends from Goshen or from somebody from Colorado that you haven't seen in a long time, maybe a high school friend, is there a, a story that you pull out of your hat from your experiences overseas that you like, you know, you kind of keep handy? In terms of for the entertainment value? <laughs> no, or just, you know, the, one, of the, one of the things that we all know in this business is it's one of the hardest questions to answer is what is it that you do? And many of us have... A story or something that we use in order to describe what, what this profession means to us and, and how we actually you know, interact in it. Do you have one of those? I suppose some of my most interesting stories come from when I was working for IOMA Rock because uh, at the time, many of the staff were based in Jordan, as I mentioned, but we would travel into Iraq and traveling into northern Iraq was always a very interesting experience. That's where I went to Erbil because we flew in on military flights. We then stayed at the UN compound where the offices and the uh, living spaces were all in the same compound area. And it was a very intense experience. And of course, there were always the security concerns as well. And so I think that is an example of maybe one extreme of humanitarian work that not many people experience and always is interesting to talk about because it is very unique way to be be providing or trying to provide aid when you are under um, pretty extreme security restrictions. And so you're trying to provide assistance from, for example, in that case, a compound. You work for an organization right now that has around 9,000 people. I think you said you've told me you have about 141 offices in different countries around the world. I think for most people, there is a thought that, you know, you're just sort of handed money in order to implement your programs. Is that the case? 
No, absolutely not. And that reflects back on my position and why this position was created is because we, just like many other NGOs or other organizations, must apply for funding and solicit that funding from governments and prove that we can be responsible and create results with the funding that we're given. And so IOM uh, struggles with that just like any other organization does. And, and many of the staff struggle with that because they're assigned to certain projects. And if that project ends and there's not another project that can fund their position, then they need to look for work elsewhere, either at another office within IOM or through another organization. So in that sense, just because we are an intergovernmental organization, that does not mean that we have guaranteed funding. We do have the contributions that the member states provide, but that is a very, very small part of the funding that IOM receives. So when you're putting these proposals together, who do you partner with and who is your competition? Are you competing with international organizations, other UN agencies? Are you partnering with them? How does that work? Yes and yes. We partner with just about every UN agency, a lot of different NGOs. We partner with the governments. Uh, we partner with academics. We partner with the private sector. And in the case, for example, of a call for proposals where it's a competitive process, then of course we could be competing with any one of those that are, could also be our partners. So it's the same game of where uh, if there's a call for proposals, if there's going to be a lot of different entities that are writing a proposal and, and going to try to get the funding, then you have to write the best proposal and be the most convincing and have the strongest consortium, uh, the strongest partners around in order to convince the government or the donor that um, that project is the one that should be funded. In your job and your, you know, in the in the regional office and with you within which you work right now, what's your biggest challenge? Like, what do you struggle with every day? Is there a particular frustration or a particular thing you, you really kind of bang your head up against the wall? Well, one challenge is that that's very specific to this region, is that a lot of the countries here are middle-income, middle-high-income countries. And so donor interest is waning. There's not a lot of donors uh, who are looking to Central America or the Caribbean uh, to fund projects, especially with the migration crises that you have all over the world um, that are calling a lot of attention away from the region, which is understandable. And so... The offices struggle, and when there are migration crises or, or situations that really do need donor attention and really do need these these uh, migrants who do need assistance, for example, the unaccompanied children that I mentioned earlier, it can be really challenging to try to find donors who are interested in financing projects to help those populations. One of the reasons why I wanted to have this be sort of our capstone about being a development professional before we move this podcast onto a new topic is... Because we have a family together, you and I, we have three children. We're, we live here in Escazú in Costa Rica. How would you describe how we've walked the line as a family to maintain balance so that, you know, you have a, a typical challenge in the development world? You, you have a family, you have children, um, but you're also required to travel and you're also required to sort of be internationally savvy. Are there some strategies that you've used in order to make sure that you can also be a mom and be with your family? Well, I think most importantly is it is to be extremely organized and to prioritize. And so 
if there is a trip that I need to take, I need to make sure and communicate that with you, my husband, to make sure that you won't be planning a trip during the same time. So we really have to work together as a team in terms of raising our children and, and our calendars and our agendas because we really have to prioritize where we can spend our time and, and how we can make sure to make both worlds operate and work really well. And so that sometimes means turning down a trip or leaving the office early in order to attend to family situations. And that sometimes means missing out on a school event or a game or a birthday party or whatever it might be because of work demands. And so it, it is a balancing act and it does take a lot of discipline. But I think that approaching it as a partnership has really worked well for us because we've been able to both explore and advance our careers and at the same time raise three children, which I think we've done uh, fairly well considering the demands on our time. And one thing that I've written on on the Apreneur website, and it's been, uh, you know, we've used it as a meme around, one of the, the things that have made our relationship successful, especially as we've been globetrotters, is that you have maintained an institutional career, and I'm lucky enough to be entrepreneurial. And so those two professional profiles work really well together when it comes to having, you know, to move from country to country or, you know, meeting family demands and those kinds of things. I agree. I think we complement each other very well, both in our personalities and our career interests. And that has been extremely helpful. I think the fact that you have so much flexibility in your schedule and in in your career has been key to allowing us to maintain a, a healthy home environment for the kids. And then also my having a more stable paycheck, we could say, has also allowed you to experiment with uh, various ideas. I I resent that remark, more stable paycheck. (laughs) I just want you to know that. (laughs) Oh, we won't be exposing more about that. (laughs) We do just fine, thank you. You know, the reason why I bring that up and and I think it's the interesting part of the conversation is because we're actually faced right now, this is, you know, February of 2016, but we're right now faced with one of these issues that are, again, so super common in the development and aid world in that you've just uh, accepted a new position for IOM. Is that correct? That is correct. I have accepted the position of Chief of Mission, also known as the Country Director or Representative uh, for our IOM office in Thailand. So Thailand, now... Holy smokes, right? Now, the, the cool part for us is that we will be moving from one tourist destination Mecca to another tourist destination Mecca, right? I guess we won't have to buy more socks, but it is literally on the other side of the planet. This is a super exciting opportunity for you. I mean, it's a huge advancement in your career and, and a whole host of new responsibilities and, and opportunities. But there's a lot of logistics and consternation that goes along, along with it. What's, what's sort of been, you know, we're only just now starting this process of thinking about when we're going to transition over there in a couple of months. What have been the biggest things on your mind in this process? Well, I think, oh, there's so many different things. But uh, again, it's looking at both the move for myself professionally and then also the move for the family. And so if we look at professionally, it's starting to prepare for a very different region with very different migration dynamics in, in a country and new staff and new thematic areas and uh, a lot of a huge learning curve, which is very exciting as well. And then personally for the family, it's 
all of that that comes with uprooting everything and moving it, as you mentioned, literally to the other side of the globe. And that's everything from considering schooling and where we will live and where that is in terms of the office and um, the timing of everything. Because uh, with the kids in school, of course, we have to think about when they would start and leave, um, leave their current situation and start in the new school. And also being so far away from our homes, our original homes, I should say, because we've been in many different homes. But uh, we're looking at, you know, a 12 or 13 hour time difference between Thailand and where we are from. And by playing almost um, door to door, looking at maybe 30 hours. And so going from being relatively close to the United States and even being the same time zone to such a drastic difference is also a consideration. And of course, on a more personal level, just thinking of how it will impact the kids. So there's so many. How do you think it'll impact the kids? I think at this point, because they're quite young. I guess I, we, we should mention it at this time. I mean, yeah, they're, they're very young. They're almost eight, almost five and two years old, right? Right. So I think for them, especially as we paint this picture as this is a tremendous adventure for them, we focus on all the exciting aspects of Thailand, um, the beaches and the various animals and getting to know new people and getting to ride trains around and those type of things that can, can make them enthusiastic about it and not focus on the more difficult aspects such as leaving their comfort zone, leaving their friends, and also just being confident in the resilience of children that our kids have been through a lot less than many other kids around the world and and really this is just um, a minor thing and and they're going to do great and the most important thing is to just provide a comforting and secure and positive environment for them and then they'll be fine you know i'm glad that you mentioned the the 12 hour time zone difference because i think that that's one thing that i've it's really started to hit home to me over this last month that we've been talking about this transition in that right now we're lucky enough in Costa Rica, we interact with the United States a lot, maybe Europe. And you know, we, it's basically the same business day. It's not too, not too shabby. And when we do have to talk to Africa or Asia or, or those parts of the world, generally speaking, we can pull them towards our time zone. But do you think that we're, we're going to become more night owls? Because we'll have to be, you know, talking to DC and we'll have to be talking to Europe and that will just necessitate the fact that, you know, they get to business after we, you know, we've closed business. I think that is exactly what it will need to be, that we're just going to have to be very flexible with our schedules. This will never be a nine to five job. And I think for both of us, our careers have never been nine to five. And so that this is going to require even more flexibility and understanding that some days we might have a 9 p.m. or a 10 p.m. or maybe even 11 p.m. phone call. I hope you know that that's not the worst time of the day for me. I cannot really do any work at 11 p.m. It's, <laughs> it's not good. Okay, maybe 9 p.m. for you. No, for me as well. And yeah, it's, it's definitely a consideration, but it's also amazing to think that we have the technology and, and in this moment that we are able to do that, that we can still maintain uh, communication so readily, which can be a curse as well, because one expects you to always be available. But I think, yeah, we just have to really exercise our flexibility. It's quite a bittersweet process as well, I guess. You know, we've been fortunate to have our latest assignment here in Costa Rica where, you know, we've really felt at home. It's the, you know, we've really, uh, we've, we've often told the people around us and the people, you know, back at home in the United States and whatnot, that it's just a fantastic community here. This is a wonderful country to live in. And 
unlike others in our business, you know, who are hopping from post to post sort of out of necessity or whatnot, it's really hard to leave this one. This one, this one's really special, wouldn't you say? I agree. It is. I think mostly because of the community that we have created. And, and of course, we always hope to create another community in Thailand. But that's part of the job. I mean, it's if one is moving around internationally, that comes with it. It's a bit bittersweet because it's so exciting to develop friendships and to create these experiences with people living abroad that I think uh, your friends become your family. And you really create um, tighter connections because you're all in this foreign country together if, if your friends are Expats. And if they're locals, then of course you you get that wonderful connection of getting to know the culture that much deeper by developing those friendships. And so the wonderful part, though, is that I think you would agree as we've left, we've still maintained a lot of those friendships. And so our community just continues to grow. Right. And and, yeah. And, and one of the things about keeping on this theme of creating this sustainability and success in one of these careers, we have as a couple been extraordinarily intentional about community building. And I think that that, you know, not to pat ourselves on the back, but that's something that I think could be a lesson for others who are out there that that community is the is is your life support system and is your safety net as well as it's your social outlet and it's also your professional network, but it's also, you know, the people whose shoulder you cry on and the people you ask for support. And it's really, really important to just be really intentional about not only cultivating it, but then maintaining it no matter where you are. I agree. And it can be a challenge for people who travel quite a bit. uh, And so they're gone from wherever place they're stationed at the moment. And um, it does take that extra work when sometimes um, the demands of family or of work are increasing, then you have to be very, one has to be very conscientious and create that balance. But it's so rewarding. And I do think um, for one's sanity, it is really important to cultivate that. What thing are you most excited about in this move other than you know, the new position, obviously, but is there something that really catches your fancy about Thailand or Southeast Asia or, or something? I I think that the beauty of it, if we're talking about, aside from the very interesting work opportunities, I think that the beauty of Thailand, the beaches, the forests, and that region as well, I, I think there's so many opportunities and I'm very excited to be able to expose our kids to all of that because it's a region that they have never lived in. And, you know, we're going on the fourth country for our seven-year-old. And and that's pretty amazing to think of and all of how that enriches them and how that they can see more of a global perspective. And so I think viewing that through their eyes, doing this adventure through them and being able to see it all through their eyes is going to be really cool. Mm. I'm, you know, to answer that same question for myself, what has really been tickling my fancy over the last three or four weeks is the moving from Costa Rica, which is a, a country of about four and a half million people, to a city that has more, you know, close to 10 million people in it. And just the density of opportunity and life and vibrancy and exposure to, you know, to different, different things, um, not only for the family, but for myself professionally, is, I'm pretty excited about that particular aspect of this move. It'll be, be quite a whirlwind. It'll be interesting to see how the kids react to it, too, since they've never really lived in a city. Right. What do you think? I mean, so we're going to be moving over to Thailand, you know, later this year, but in your business, in your profession, in IOM specifically, what, what's the future look like? Um, is there something that IOM is focusing on in particular to, you know, is what they see are the big migration issues for the next five or 10 years? Or, uh, and, you know, will your work be in Thailand be a part of that? Or like, what's, what's that future perspective look like? 
Well, there are a lot of changing dynamics in migration. Uh, I think one of the biggest ones is um, migration and climate change. I think that is going to increasingly become acute and urgent and something that every country is going to be facing. And so, and certainly uh, the Southeast Asia and, and Thailand is not exempt for that. So I think uh, looking down the road, that's going to be a very hot issue. It already is. And so it's going to be very in- interesting to explore. And I think also there's more and more demand for tracking migration movements. And IOM is very advanced and sophisticated in this sense. We do a lot of mapping and tracking of internally displaced people, migration flows um, across oceans, um, through continents, and being able to provide really accurate statistics and data, and also identifying the migrants' needs and their vulnerabilities. And so I think that hunger for information is a place where IOM is really advancing and thriving in. Uh, So I think those are two areas that are very important for the organization and and also uh, just globally in the migration context. The last question I have for you, Dana, is one that I have asked all of the other previous Terms of Reference podcast guests. And that is, you know, what are your one or two pieces of critical device in order to create a sustainable and successful career in the development business? I think one is, uh, and this might sound a little bit cliche, but it's networking. It's really getting to know people, following up with individuals that you meet both inside and outside the organization and keeping those contacts alive because you never know when they might come in handy. And nobody works in a silo anymore. Nobody works in a vacuum. We all rely heavily on our interactions with each other and and so much of the humanitarian assistance that we provide relies on partners and, and working with others. And so I think that's been key. And I think that also being open-minded um, and eager to learn because as soon as you think you know it all, then you're in trouble because there's always, uh, in the humanitarian field and the international de- development field, things are always changing. Technology's changing. The problems are changing. A new disaster, a new emergency, a new migration flow in our area. And so one needs to constantly be hungry for that information and for adapting the response and the assistance based on that. So I I think continuing to be open-minded and learning, um, it never stops. And and that's also what makes it so interesting. Super cool. And here I was thinking that you were going to say, having a great partner to do it all with. <laughs> that's the obvious one. I mean, <laughs> that's the obvious one. That helps a lot, but that's um, not everybody is as lucky as I am. <laughs> Nor I. Okay, now everybody on the who's listening to the podcast can can open their ears back up after we stop gushing. Dana, thank you so much for your time today and taking time out of your day to be the you know the capstone guest here on the Terms of Reference podcast as we talk about careers. And we're going to move on to innovations. Thanks so much. Thank you. It's been wonderful. You've been listening to the Terms of Reference podcast from aidpreneur.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes.